This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. If you've got your Bibles, the book of John chapter 5 is where we're going to be, verses uh, 17 through 30, give or take. Um, I've been married for 20 seven years and 11 months. Like we're coming in for, we're coming in for year 28. I used to look at people my age with a sense of pity. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't, I would have never said it out loud, but oh, that poor guy, he's so old. And now I'm looking at it going, well, I wasn't wrong. <laughs> but, um, but at 28 years old, 28 years of marriage, Man, I have learned some things along the way. Uh, and, the, and not the least of which is God's sense of humor in bringing together Darren and Shannon. So I've got, I'm like a head, I just think, my brain is always going. Like, if you were to get a, a live shot inside my head, imagine, you know, like, do they still do bingo where they do the little barrel, like the little basket, and they just start spinning it? And then the numbers pop up on, do you know what I'm talking about? Is anybody? Okay. That's my brain. And I'm just hoping that the right amount of thoughts come out in the right order that makes something cohesive. Like there's just always spinning. My wife, on the other hand, is all heart. And her heart just loves deeply, feels deeply. She, she loves deeply. She grieves deeply. She, she like rejoices deeply. And I'm over here going... Well, that's, an, that's fascinating. <laughs> and, and in God's sense of humor, when you think on it, you think, man, if, if only God, when you, and let me tell you what, especially if you're young, and you're looking at your young spouse, and you're thinking, man, I wish that she were more like me, or I wish he were more like me, right? Like, like I wish that my wife would sit down and watch the entire Jordan Peterson series on Genesis, all seven hours of it. Okay. Now, she'd rather claw her own eyes out. And there are times when I come home, and I don't know what it is about the TV, but the fact that there's always a Reese Witherspoon movie or a Sandra Bullock rom-com, or, like, she can find, like, she like, sniffs them out like a bloodhound, and, and she watches them over and over and over again in the same way that I watch Seinfeld over and over and over again. In fact, there's an episode of Seinfeld for about the 14 people that have actually watched it um, where Jerry Seinfeld falls in love for the first time and, and, and he realizes that this, this girl that's exactly like him, right? She eats cereal for dinner. She, I mean, everything, she loves him and at one point he goes, I know, I've been looking for my whole life. It's me. <laughs> and I've swept myself off my feet. <laughs> And by the end of the episode, he realizes, I hate her. <laughs> I think it's Dr. Phil that says this something along these lines, that when you, somebody, when there's something about somebody that really annoys you, what you're really saying is, there's really something about that guy that I hate about myself. And 28 years into marriage, I realized that the, the, the last thing that I would, ra- I mean, look, spending an evening alone with me to watch Jordan Peterson with me, that's a terrible idea. I would 
hate that. Like it, on paper it sounds so good, but in real life, it's a terrible idea. Because God brings opposites together in order to make me more like Christ. Like Shannon has taught me to feel. Like what is this salty discharge coming out of my eyes? It's, oh, those are tears because you're sad. Brand new information for me. And I get to be a part of helping her like process information. Because sometimes in a heart you, you feel, but we gotta make a logical thing. And so, so together we make each other more like, not each other, but like Jesus. It's part of the lie of a modern idea is that marriage is just to make me happy. In a marriage situation, we are making each other more. We are literally called together in Ephesians to make each other more into the image of Christ. Now, in John chapter five, the Sadducees, these, the Sanhedrin, this, this legal council of judges in Israel is ticked off at Jesus because the Jesus that they wanted was not the Jesus that they needed. They wanted a Jesus that would enforce the rules and the regulations and the policies and the procedures. They wanted a Jesus that was like them. So when this guy gets healed, walks away, the first thing they're calling a flag on the play is that he did it on the Sabbath day. And as you read this, I want you to think through that we have the same opportunity to look at Jesus and say, I'd rather make Jesus in my image, the Jesus that I want, may not be the Jesus that I need. And if God is, I mean, Lord, if Wallace did anything last week is to show you that Jesus is who he said he is. And if God, right, the perfect, the knower of all of our design in the universe knows you as well as you, way better than you know yourself, then the Jesus of the Bible is going to be the Jesus that you need even if you don't think he's the one that you want. So with that in mind, I'm gonna just read verses 24 through 30, John 5, verses 24 through 30. Truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from life to death. You should, if you're a Bible underliner at all, underline that one. We're going to come back to it. He, remember, he's not talking to an individual anymore. He's not talking to somebody by a pagan pool. He's talking to the Sanhedrin, these judges that were there to enforce laws of Torah, of religion, and Judaism. Verse 25. Truly I tell you that a time is coming, and now has come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Sanhedrin guys reading this, they recognize from Daniel, from the prophet, son of man, he is calling himself Messiah. In verse 28, do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice come out those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. But myself, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your 
word. We pray that it is a, a lamp for our feet. We approach it with humility, with an, with an openness to hear from your spirit. Lord, I pray today that your word judges me, not me judging your word. Would you allow your words to speak, to convict, to correct, to encourage, all those things that you promised that it would do for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Jesus that we need. See, Messiah, they, they wanted a Jesus, Sanhedrin, they wanted a Jesus that was gonna come in and enforce the law. They wanted a Jesus that was gonna come in and overthrow the government. They had this whole idea of what they wanted from Jesus. And if you in your mind this morning don't know that you do this, you do this, I do this, that there is a part of who I want from Jesus that may or may not line up with scripture. It's why the Bible is so important so that I'm not creating God in my image. He wants to create you in his image. And just a little clue, if Jesus in your mind and your idea and experience could never agree, disagree with you, if the Jesus that you serve never would do anything that you wouldn't do yourself, eh, Jesus is probably you. It's you creating Jesus in your image. Because there's a Jesus, again, God, perfect, he knows you. The Jesus that he gave us, the Jesus that we know from the word, is the Jesus that we need. We're, by the way, this is a whole long sermon from chapter, all the way to the end of chapter five. We're not gonna get through all of it. But I wanna start with this and show you that you don't need Jesus, the good prophet, the good teacher. You need Jesus as God. I'm gonna show you why. By the way, that was what ticked off the Sanhedrin the most. When he starts declaring God, it says that from that moment on, they set about to try to kill him. You need Jesus as life. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. Like that's the Jesus that we need. And we need Jesus as a judge. And when I say that word out loud, some of y'all's butt cheeks tighten up like mine do when you think about criminal or law. Or be, if you've ever been sued, you ever been deposed, you ever sat in a courtroom, you hear the word judge, that's a pejorative, right? Oh, I don't want to do that. And if you're a lawyer, my apologies. But I, I just have not enjoyed ever any court situation ever that I've been in was not a pleasurable experience. But I want to show you that the judge, Jesus, not Judge Judy, not Judge Wapner, but Judge Jesus is actually the Jesus that we need. Jesus is God. He makes claims in here. I'm the son of man. I'm, I'm the son, the father. He's, literally, he's taking on the identity. I don't do anything that the father doesn't tell me. It's literally, Jesus is God, is the claim that he's making. And this is a crucial claim because we need somebody, we need some way to arbitrate, to know what is good and what is evil. Now you might think, great, we, we can do that with our courts. You know, we can try to legislate or litigate. Our, our culture can tell us. Most uh, in the progressive Christian faith, when they, when they no longer trust the Bible, will say that, well, we can let culture tell us, or we can let history tell us, or we can let our hearts tell us. And the, man, I've traveled way too much to know that that's just baloney. In Asia right now, every slave that has been set free on that wall was enslaved 100% legally and culturally and morally according to their culture. 
How arrogant would we be to say that our culture, somehow we figured out something that they didn't because they're saying that they figured out something that we didn't. That's literally what's happening right now at World Cup in Qatar. Cultures are battling with each other over what is right and what is wrong. We need some way to arbitrate what is true, what is good, what is evil. And when we let culture do it, you know, in, in World Cup, they can't, I mean, I didn't even know you could do this, cancel beer sales for a stadium. That's punk rock right there. That's like Islam punk rock. Like we, we shutting you down. But that's what their culture, how dare we say, right? But meanwhile, back at the ranch in America, Candace Cameron is a lovely human being. Do we decide it's beer? Is it like puree? Like beer? Beer? Do we know? Actually, I should just ask you guys. Am I, am I close? There you go. Get you. Um, is put on trial once again, like the, the Salem witch trial here in America, every time a Christian says something. And so she's been on blast from NBC, CBS. I mean, the Atlantic's over there wringing their hands and having a meltdown. And, and her offensive statement, just so you know, like here's what she said that was so terribly offensive. That she, uh, in this new uh, situation she's in, that we're going to focus on traditional marriage. And the press went wild. Burned her down over traditional marriage. You see, now, the Sanhedrin were mad because Jesus is working on the Sabbath, and this is our law. And by the way, all... You can go to the old, the old covenant, 10 commandments. All it says is remember the Sabbath, right? Keep it holy. Nowhere in the 10 commandments does it say don't pick up a mat and walk home with it. Nowhere in the Sabbath does it say, which, which is what the Sanhedrin had done. We made all these rules, these extra ones. You can move something in your house, but you can't move it into someone else's house. And, and they were doing that, by the way, just really simply because if the Sabbath is holy, can God still work on the Sabbath? That was the, the giant conundrum they had. And so they figured we gotta make some rules because what Jesus was saying, by the way, his defense is, again, I'm God, I'm healing on the Sabbath because God is always working and I am doing his work. That made them angry. But they're making a claim to say that you can't work. And so they just made all these extra rules. If you go to Israel, like we're gonna go there in February, you're gonna get there on Shabbat and you're gonna be a whole lot of Shabbat Shalom when you're gonna walk onto an elevator for the first time, and it's gonna be like some four-year-old pushed all the buttons. Because a Shabbat elevator, you can't work, you can't push a button, so you gotta hit every floor up and down. And if you're on the top floor, it's a long ride on the Shabbat elevator because somebody somewhere decided that pushing a button on the Sabbath is against the rules, don't do that. God said, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. The Sanhedrin said, if you pick up a mat and put it on your shoulders, then you are violating the Sabbath. The rules and the regulations, what, we get, what the world wants from us right now, what the Sanhedrin want from them then is to create rules and regulations and policies and procedures. And good Lord, if we've seen anything in our world right now is how fast a rule can change, is how fast that it can happen. We don't even know, like I didn't know, like literally five minutes ago, that was okay. I mean, literally in 2008 and 12, President Obama said out loud that marriage is between a man and a woman. He said it out loud in his campaign. That's 10 years ago. But if you're gonna let culture decide, then culture changes at a whim. We don't want Jesus as God, but we need Jesus as God because we need somebody to tell us what is good and what is evil.
And wouldn't you rather be the one telling you what is good and evil to be the one that gave his life for us, the one that, again, we talked about a community, became one of us, was crucified, buried, resurrected for us. Wouldn't you think that that God would be the one that you'd be willing to trust that probably he's got your best interests in mind? Jesus says, I'm equal to God. Isaiah 14, verse 14, Satan, his sin, said, I want to be like, I want to be equal with the most high. When I'm now deciding what is good and what is evil and not letting God tell me that, that is me making the same mistake that Satan made, saying that I want to be equal with God. Not equal with you, but equal with God, because I'm the one that's going to make that decision of what is good and what is evil. The big deal of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Now Adam and Eve get to decide what is good and what is evil. And boy, do we live in a world right now where people are calling good evil and evil good. Jesus is God. We need him as God. He's also life. I don't know if you've ever been around a bunch of rules and regulations. I mean, I went to a Bible college where I had to cut my hair above my ears. Anybody go to one of those? Did they have a picture of Jesus on the wall at yours with long, with long hair? Yeah. yeah, I'm just saying. I got my hair cut above my ears and I'm walking by long-haired Jesus going, hey, wait, whoa, wait, but, what? You can get so caught up into rules and regulations and policies and procedures that it's no longer life for you, it's sucking the life out of you. And when he comes to a church situation, it's, it's easy for me to throw rocks at the Sanhedrin, easy for me to throw rocks at social justice religion, but in a church situation, we can do the exact same thing. I mean, we've recently, I mean, I guess, I don't know if I can say this out loud, but we can always edit it out. <laughs> Welcome to second service, where. Over the last year, in our church family, we've been trying to figure out what is appropriate dress and clothing for our staff. Because I'll tell you this much, uh, y'all have a lot of opinions about it. We've got the emails about it. You, and and what's, what's, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable? Is it, there are some, like, some things you're like, okay, that's clearly not it. Clearly. But then there's things that are like, I don't know, does it have to be board shorts? Does it have to be like a full t-shirt that goes down to here? Does it, like we were literally asking these questions as a church staff saying what, what's, what's an acceptable thing for dress code? Some of you are looking at me right now going, <laughs> you set the standard pretty low, clearly. <laughs> Bro, I'll tell you this much. When I was a kid playing bass in the church band, we had to wear a tie on stage. If you're on stage, you gotta wear a tie. That was the rule. I don't know when it went away, but let me, let me tell you when it, well, I'll tell you when it came to a screeching halt was in April 2010 when Darren and Shannon, right, we started church. That ain't gonna happen, obviously. But my, my point is, is that in the Christian world, 
your standard or his standard or my standard clash together, we really need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit on it. Because yes, as a young man or a young woman, we want to dress in a way that brings glory to God. And that sounds so easy until you're like, do we want to be that church where someone's measuring a skirt when you walk in the door? Do we want to be a church where someone who doesn't know Christ walks in, they didn't know any better and now everybody's staring at them because they didn't fit the dress code for it? No, that's not life. So Jesus being God gives us standards, right? But Jesus being life, the Holy Spirit then allows us to have grace for each other and mercy for each other. So we're, the, we're just not a brand new version of the Jesus Sanhedrin. And somewhere in that, there's this grace that we can find for each other. It was really an exhausting year. We were, it's like, honestly, that, I'll tell you this, that was the hardest thing I've ever done as a leader as a church. And I, we've done some hard stuff. And I'm, it's not hyperbolic to say that, you know, we're listening to our young leaders, we're listening to families, we're listening to parents. We're just, what do we, how do we make these decisions? We kept coming back to we want to glorify God and whatever that means and give each other enough grace that someone walks in that we're not wrinkling our nose at them. I'm just glad you're here. You know what I mean? I got room for Jesus to grow that inside of you. Jesus, look, I, look, I, may, I may not be uh, dressing provocatively this morning. Don't want to make any of you stumble. <laughs> All you Alec Baldwin lovers out there, like, ooh, that is some eye candy right there. <laughs> Old Alec Baldwin, man. Woo. <laughs> that may not be my, but look, I got plenty of other crap. My wife can write it down and send you home with a list. <laughs> Jesus is working on all of us. He hasn't got to that part on me yet or he ain't got to that part on you yet. Jesus is life and the life, the gift that we can give each other is what the modern social day justice religion didn't give. It's what the Salem witch trials didn't offer. It's what the Sanhedrin didn't offer, which is mercy. And mercy, I want to read this to you from, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead on a slide here, actually. If I can find the Andrew Doyle. Andrew Doyle, not a Jesus guy, wrote a book called The New Puritans. He's speaking specifically of the modern day religion of social justice. And the idea that he was in his book, it's a fascinating book. I, it's not for everybody. The language can be a little uh, stout. But from a completely secular, completely humanist side makes the case that one of the, one of the main differences between the Salem witch trials and the Puritans of America, and he makes, he's very careful to say this, by the way, that on one hand, it's true. They, you know, they were burning witches without evidence. They were burning witches there weren't witches, you know, but look, here's what he, he says here about the Puritans, and this was important. 
Most importantly, the Puritans believed in the importance of mercy, which is why the judges in Salem were inclined to leniency for those who confessed their malefic witchcraft. The cancel culture perpetrated by the new Puritans not only suggests a general disdain for the contempt of mercy, but it also reinforces their perception of themselves as some kind of infallible elect. The new Puritans then are best understood as clergy for a godless age, presiding over a dreamscape of their own making, rewriting our language, history, and traditions as they go along. Mercy is something that God offers all of us. And the danger right now in our, and if you're part of that, look, the thing that I love about if you're really into social justice is you kind of want the same thing that I want. I don't want any more slaves. I don't want anybody oppressed. And neither does Jesus. But we come to a very, very different turn in the methodology. Because in a world without social, Jesus, I'm sorry, the social justice just becomes its own version of some godless, merciless, puritanical Sanhedrin that does nothing but stone and shame and marginalize until you've apologized profusely enough and then you're still banished. That's not what Jesus came to do. See, the thing that the social justice warriors get right is that there are sinners out there. There are people that do dark things. There are people who lie. There are people who oppress. There are people who marginalize. Where they get it wrong is that it's all of us. It's not us versus them, it's us. And if you disagree with that this morning, I want you to hold up your phone in your hand and look at it. And I want you to acknowledge that this was made by children in a mine in Africa who are child slaves by a Chinese government making the elements needed for this phone so that you could tweet about social justice. It's all of us. I, I don't know what, I mean, maybe we become, maybe we, where, where, uh, where do we go down and make butter and like churn butter and make our own pants and stuff like the Amish community on stuff? I mean, maybe we go do that. <laughs> I don't know how to churn butter. I don't, I, mean, I don't know how to make pants. <laughs> We're all in this together. And a world without mercy is not a world that you wanna live in, which is why we not only need Jesus as life, but Jesus as judge. Because he's the only one that can figure out how to get us out of this one alive. In verse 22, the father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the son, that all that may honor the son just as they honor the father Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father, whoever sent him. Moreover, the father judges Noah. You see what he's saying? I'm allowing Jesus now to be the judge. I'm not only allowing, I want him to be the judge. And you know why he's the perfect judge? 
because he's God, because he's life, and because he became one of us. He knows. He's been here. He knows the world that you've lived in. He lived in it himself. And I love this verse. When he says that, verse 26 says, the father has life in himself, so he's granted the judge also to have life in himself. He's given him the authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. There's this time coming for those of us who are alive on this earth are going to rise to be judged, and you've got two options. Revelation speaks of this great white throne judgment. That's the judgment for those who have rejected Christ and said, I'm gonna stand on my own two feet. I'm gonna let you weigh my good works and weigh my bad works, and you decide, based on that, Jesus, you decide if I get in or I get out. And the damnable misery, quite literally, literally, is that none of us will make it on that merit. None of us. Jesus became one of us, lived a perfect life. He has the perfect view to judge us. That great white throne judgment is judgment you want nothing to do with. That verse we read at the very beginning, that those who believe on him, you will not be judged. There's this other judgment spoken of in Corinthians, we call it the bema seat judgment. It's this idea that those who are in Christ we stand before him, this great mercy that he gives us in that it says that you're good, like all your works, it's like it's all gonna be burned, which sounds horrible, right? Like, oh God, I'm burning my stuff. But all that's left is the gold, the purity, the silver, he's gonna burn away everything else. What he's saying is this is actually not cruel at all, it's this great gift to us that when I stand before Christ on that day as someone who is in Christ, all the works I've done bad are gone. The only thing left is what is pure, the gold. The only thing left is Christ. That isn't cruelty, that's mercy. If you ever think about the idea that someday I'm gonna stand, I used to think this, I'm gonna stand before God one day and this whole movie of my life is gonna play and all the bad and shameful things that I've ever, you know, do you ever have that? That's a nightmare. Paul does away with that when he says, no, no, no that's not, I'm gonna burn the movie. And I'm gonna stand there and you're gonna stand there in Christ. You're gonna see his righteousness and his goodness. It's the only way that justice and mercy can exist. A God who is a judge and a God who is life can only exist in a way where if someone else takes my punishment, pays my debt for me. That's it, the only way. You don't think you want Jesus as a judge He's the only one that you want as a judge. Douglas Murray, also not a Jesus guy. In his book, The Madness of Crowds, he writes that one of the consequences of the death of God, Nietzsche foresaw that people would find themselves stuck in cycles of Christian theology with no way out. Specifically, that people would inherit the concepts of guilt, sin, 
and shame, but would be without the means of redemption, which the Christian religion also offered. Today, we do seem to live in a world where actions can have consequences we could have never imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. Without Jesus, everything Douglas Murray said is true. Without Jesus. But with Jesus, we have a path to redemption. We have a path that means we don't get canceled. We have a path where Jesus on the cross allowed himself, my sin, to be canceled without canceling me. It's incredible. And here's what that offers us, and I want to end with this, especially because we're going into Thanksgiving where you're going to be around maybe family that doesn't think like you think, maybe people who don't believe like you believe, like Mark said. Your job isn't to be the judge. Your job's not to be God. Your job's not even to be life. Our job is to literally let the spirit of God flow through us. Love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the questions that you might ask is how do I love, how do I love this person? You're kind of that old cantankerous uncle. I don't know if you got one of those. One of the greatest ways we can do it is by listening. Again, someone who wants social justice, someone who, if it's a religious person who's really like, you've got the, the old school church or whatever that's really hardcore religion, if you've got the really hardcore social justice religion person, if you've got the hardcore atheist person, we all want the same thing. I want fairness, I want equity, I want love. And instead of, I'm just gonna float it, hammering them with your well-crafted thoughts. What if we listened? What's behind that? Help me understand, what are you thinking when you say that? David Osberger said that being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Disabuse yourself of the notion that you are a salesman trying to close a deal. Jesus never used the language of I'm a salesperson. Overcome the objections, ask for the sale. That's great if you're selling cars. We're not selling squat. Jesus used the language of agriculture, of planting. You're just planting seeds. The sower sows the word. And parenthetically, in that parable, only one out of four soils was good, 25% success rate. By the way, I don't believe that that means everybody's soil is frozen in time for their whole life. I'm just saying, when you're sowing seeds, you're sowing seeds. And we can keep sowing, we can keep listening, keep loving. When you say, how do I love them, listen to them. Don't have to agree with them. That's not what I'm saying at all. But maybe if we listened more this year, and prayed more, 
some of those loved ones that we love that need Jesus as judge, Jesus as God, right? Jesus as life. We'll turn their just a little bit closer to Jesus and a little bit further away. Because let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, this is the last thing I'm gonna say. We've, we are at a time in our world right now where in, in the 1960s, the sexual revolution happened, okay? Free love, free everything, Gloria Steinem, the whole production. By about 1970, all of the people that they loved and looked up to and respected started dying of AIDS, started dying, not of AIDS, of, of drug overdoses, dying of alcohol poisoning, dying of accident. They're literally, all the promises that we were made about this free revolution weren't true. The bills came due and there was no money in the account. We've lived through about, seems like 30 years of a postmodern where there's no truth, your truth, my truth, there's no right, there's no wrong. The bills are due and there's no money in the account. There's never been a better time for an awakening, for a revival in our country. In the 70s, it came out of the sexual revolution. I believe in our modern time, it's gonna come out of the revolution of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We have a corner on that market. Stand to your feet, I wanna pray for you. Jesus is God. Jesus is life. Jesus is the perfect judge. And we walk out of here today, Father, with that peace, with that knowledge. We walk out of here today, Father, adjusting our own. I don't know that sometimes I want you as a judge. I want to be the one judging. Lord, give us wisdom. Please allow us this, not just this week, for the rest of our lives to approach others with the same compassion and truth, with the same truth, the same love that you approached those around you. Doesn't mean everybody's gonna love us, and boy, do we know that, but we love you, and we love you enough to speak truth and let the chips fall where they may. Allow us to live in a way just like Candace Cameron Bure did, just to speak not back out of anger and rage, but out of love to those that would persecute us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.